So today we're not actually going to start the letter in terms of Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. I actually want us to start today with an introduction. I want us to think through the context of this letter and the big themes that you're going to see as we study this over the next few months. And I want to encourage you that any time you are studying Scripture, this is the way to approach the Bible. Remember that this letter was written by a real person in a real time to a real church. And so if we can put ourselves into their context and we can understand who those people were, what was going on in their lives, who wrote it and why they wrote it, then that helps us to understand what we can receive from it today. Because remember, while it had a first century purpose, God's Word is eternal and His Word is alive, and so God is still working through this Word. In God's sovereignty and His Spirit, this letter was written as much for us as it was to the church in Colossae. It was intended for them, and it was intended for you. And so, for us to really understand it, we start with the original context, and then we think through, okay, now how does that apply today to me? How does that apply today to this context? Because God meant it for both. And so in your notes, if you're a, a note taker, and you have one of the worship guides, what we're looking at today is lessons from Colossae. We're going to look at some big themes that are going to be in this letter that I hope you will look for while we study it the next few months because these are going to come up again and again. But we're going to take a little bit of the context from the first century and we're going to try to bring it into our day here in 2023. So lesson number one from the church in Colossae. Gospel learning and gospel sharing are means by which God grows and preserves His church. I'll read it one more time. Gospel learning, learning about the gospel, the truth about Jesus, sharing, gospel sharing, sharing about the gospel, sharing truths about Jesus, are means, and I will say a primary means, by which God grows His church and preserves His church. It is not, when we think about church growth and our desire to grow, for our church to grow and reach more people, for us to grow, it's not about human wisdom, it's not about programs, it's not about what we can offer to people that we can come up with on our own. It's about the Gospel of Jesus. That's the means by which God intends to grow and preserve His church. And we see that in this letter. This letter was written to a church in a city called Colossae. It was in, a, in the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was divided into districts. The district that Colossae was in is called Phrygia. It was about 100 miles from a much bigger city named Ephesus, which you would be familiar with from the letter to the Ephesians. And it was really close to a couple of churches, one of which you hear mentioned in Revelation, 10 miles away from Laodicea, 12 miles away from Hierapolis. It was written by the Apostle Paul. He was in prison when he wrote it. Probably his first imprisonment for preaching the gospel. There were two. We believe the second one cost him his life. His first imprisonment 
was about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He is in prison for preaching the Gospel. He's in prison for sharing about Jesus and calling Jesus Lord. And while he's in prison, he writes several letters. He may probably wrote a lot more than that, but several of his letters God intended to be in our copy of Scriptures in the Bible. Those letters was the letter to the Ephesians, that church in Ephesus, the letter to the Philippians, the church in Philippi, a letter to the church in Colossae, the Colossians, and also a pastoral letter to a person named Philemon. And if you've ever studied the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, it is primarily Paul urging Philemon to be reconciled with a slave that had abandoned him named Onesimus. Philemon lived in Colossae. And so when Paul sent the letter to the Colossians, he sent the letter to Philemon as well. And that is why in the Scripture journals you see that people put those two letters together. Now here's the really interesting thing to me. Paul did not start this church. Not only that, Paul had never even been to this church. He is writing to this church in Colossae, and he's never been there. He didn't start this church. He did not start it directly, but he did start it indirectly. The founder of this church was a man named Epaphras. And Epaphras is mentioned in chapter 4, verse 12, and I'll read the verse. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So who is Epaphras? He was a man who lived in Colossae. When Paul was in the city of Ephesus preaching the gospel, Paul was there for about three years. He planted the church in Ephesus. And Acts tells us that all of the people in the Roman uh, province of Asia heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean that Paul traveled around to all of these places in the province of Asia. But what it means is that many people were going to Ephesus to hear Paul preach. We believe that Epaphras was one of those people. That he went to the city of Ephesus and he heard Paul preach the gospel. And he was saved. He believed the gospel. Now what did Epaphras do after he heard the gospel? He goes home. And what does he do when he gets to Colossae? He starts telling people about Jesus. He starts telling people about this gospel. And what happened? A church was formed. The reason I want to stress this to you is because Epaphras didn't go to Ephesus to say, I think I want to plant a church. I think I want to pastor a church. Let me go hear from this Paul guy. No, he had no idea about the gospel. He went to Ephesus because he had heard about this man named Paul that was preaching something, and he wanted to go hear it. So he goes and he hears the message, and he is saved. And then even then, I don't think Epaphras said, okay, now I'm going to go home and start a church. I think he just said, I'm going to go home and tell people about this Jesus. 
I'm going to go home and share with people what I have learned and what I have heard. And what did God do with that? Epaphras became a church founder. He became a church planter. He became a minister of the gospel. Not only in Colossae, but he would later become a minister of the gospel in Laodicea and Hierapolis as well. My point to you in really stressing this is that's how the church grows. It's not by leaders or people who want to be leaders going to school, getting trained, going to church planning conferences, and then going out and planning churches and doing all that professional work. I'm not saying God doesn't use school. I'm not saying He doesn't use church planning conferences. But the way God grows His church from the very beginning is the people coming to know Christ through the Gospel and then going and sharing what they've learned. And that's you. That's you. I'm not saying God is going to use you to plant a church. I'm not saying He won't. I'm not saying what He will do with that, except He will do something with it. You don't know the people that He's putting in your lives. So many times we just think those encounters are so random. I'm, I'm at this job because I went to the job fair. I'm standing next to this person every day because they went to the job fair too. I live in this community because that was the house that I saw and that I purchased. I'm in this church because I drove by and saw their sign. I met this person in line at the grocery store because I had to go get bread. That's the way we think. Yet, what I believe is our lives are far more intentional and purposeful than that. You're at your job because God placed you there. You're standing next to that person because God put you there and put them there. That random encounter is not that random. And if we see our lives like that, and we understand that God is growing us as we study the Gospel, and He intends for us to share what we're learning, that's how His church grows. That's how people are invited into a church. If this church grows in number, it's not going to be because David or Kevin or Sam had some amazing vision for church growth. If we had that apart from the Gospel, it would fail anyway. How this church will grow is when you, as ministers of the Gospel, share the Gospel that is being talk to you. You might find yourself like Epaphras, a church planner, or you might find yourself sharing the gospel with someone who becomes a church planner. But you will have an impact when you see your life that way, intentionally, that God is putting people in your life that you might share the gospel with them. Now, how did Paul come to write this letter to Colossae? What we learn is that Epaphras has gone now many years later because he didn't hear the gospel when Paul was in prison. He heard it when Paul was in Ephesus. 
But now Paul's in prison. And apparently, Epaphras has traveled to Rome to meet with Paul. Why is he there? And what we're going to learn in this letter is that this young church in Colossae is in danger. There is a heresy, a heretical teaching that has arisen in the church, and it needs to be addressed. And potentially, Epaphras doesn't know how to deal with it. So what does he do? He turns to his mentor. He goes to Rome to visit with Paul and to tell Paul about what's happening in Colossae and in the church. And Paul writes this letter to help address it. And if you're interested in all the details of it, it's not Epaphras that delivers the letter, but a man named Tychicus. I practiced that one last night. Tychicus delivers the letter. We're not sure why Epaphras didn't go back with it. In Philemon, verse 23, Paul calls him Epaphras, my fellow prisoner. Some people believe that means that Epaphras might have been put in prison himself with Paul. If that happens, we don't know why. But something delayed him, so Paul writes the letter and sends it with Tychicus and the letter to Philemon back to Colossae. So, Epaphras has come, and he's talking to Paul, and he's saying, here's how the church is doing. Here's the good things, but here's the trouble that we have. Here's the difficulty that we have. So everything that Paul writes in this letter is because of that visit from Epaphras. Primarily dealing with a problem in the church that is coming from heretical teaching. That brings us to the second theme or the second lesson from Colossae in your notes. Pollution and dilution are always a threat to genuine Christian faith. I'm going to explain those terms, what I mean by them in just a moment. Pollution and dilution are always a threat to genuine Christian faith. What I have in mind there when I say pollution is the threat of adding something to the gospel, contaminating it, because you add something to it. Or dilution, the threat of removing something from the gospel. So what's happening in Colossae that Epaphras is so worried about and that Paul is addressing? Let's go back to the context for a moment. Colossae is near a major Roman highway. And so there was a lot of travel nearby the city. And like most Roman cities, Colossae was very diverse. There was a very diverse background, racial background, ethnic background. It was a Gentile city, which means non-Jews, but there were also a lot of Jews there. As a matter of fact, about 50,000 Jews probably lived in the area because they had been relocated there about three centuries prior, and they had grown and flourished. Why does that matter? It matters because the people of Colossae were probably exposed to a lot of brand new ideas that were being brought in by people traveling through Rome. And not only were they hearing a lot of new ideas and new concepts and new philosophies, 
Remember, there was no internet back then. People are not reading things. They hear news as they travel, as it travels. So they're hearing about these new ideas, these new philosophies, new religious thought. And they also have all of their traditional religious thought. The heresy in Colossae is one of the great mysteries of the New Testament. It doesn't have a name. We know a lot of names of heresies in that day. Just like we know some names of heresies in our day. If I, were, if I was to say to you the prosperity gospel, most of you would have an idea of what I'm talking about. A gospel that teaches God's blessings to His people as always health and riches. Or that you can obtain health and riches from God by mere faith. And if you don't have those things, it's because you don't have enough faith. We know that heresy to some degree and we know the name of it. And there were heresies in Paul's day, and people know the name of them, but not this one. We don't know what this was. We don't have a name for it. Paul never refers to these false teachers by name. He doesn't call them out. He never refers to false teachers coming into the church. He does mention that the people that are starting this problem have lost contact with the head of the church, with Christ. So we actually think this is something that is happening from within the church. Imagine being in a church and a small group of people start teaching something that's different than the true gospel and people in the church are listening to it because they're a part of the church. They're going to their small groups. They're going to their coffee houses. They're talking about this new thing, this new idea, this new thought. That's probably what's happening in Colossae. Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 2, he tells the church, don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. He calls it a philosophy, so it was probably a coherent teaching. And it was being presented as an alternative to the gospel. And because Paul says, don't be taken captive by this, it was likely very attractive to them. You and I probably have the thought that if someone brought us a heresy, we would just be like, I don't want any part of that. We'd recognize it right away, and we'd have no trouble steering clear of it. We imagine ourselves smarter, brighter, more wise than the church in Colossae. But I would say to us, Agape, that we're as susceptible to it as anyone else. It's a deceptive tool of the enemy. And when you're being deceived, the whole point is you don't know you're being deceived. When something is attractive, it's attractive for a reason. There's something in you, there's something in us that is drawn toward what it is. These people were not walking up and saying, hey, I know that we're a Christian church, and I know this is Christianity, but I've got a whole different separate thing I want to tell you about. What scholars believe is that this heresy that was in Colossae was probably a combination of Christianity, some type of local Judaism, the Jewish religion, and some type of traditional folk religion that existed in Phrygia. All of that meshed together. But if it was an add-on to Christianity, if it was something that was being added to the Christian faith, then the church might not recognize it right away. Because those things usually happen 
in a very subtle way. Agape, I say to us today that there is as much of a danger to us in not holding to the true and genuine Christianity that we have been taught and is taught in the Bible. That danger is as real to us as it was to the people of Colossae. We have a danger in our gospel being polluted or diluted the same as they did. Attractive-sounding philosophies, attractive-sounding teachings that get merged with Christianity, and we may not recognize it right away. A couple of years ago, I saw an advertisement for a car dealership in Birmingham, not far from here. They were selling pickups, pickup trucks, and they wanted to sell a lot of them. And so on the 4th of July, they had a a sell on these trucks where they were offering that if you were to buy a truck from them that weekend, you would also receive a patriotic pack package. The patriotic package, if you bought the truck that weekend, was a free rifle, an American flag, and a copy of the King James Bible. Now I say to you, that they weren't trying to sell something to the culture. They were trying to tap into something in the culture. Because, see, where we live, there's a philosophy of patriotism. We want to be patriotic good citizens. And what is patriotism for a lot of people? You love guns, you love your freedom, your flag, and you love God. And that's patriotism. What happens if you think of it in reverse? To be a patriot, to be patriotic means I love America and I love God. And so if I love God, it means what? I love America. It's a philosophy that says in this culture we live in, in this part of the country, that to love God and love country are things that you hold on simultaneously. And so to love God, you love your country, and if you love your country, you love God. Now, I want to say something to you. I'm thankful for our country. I'm thankful for people in this room who have served in our military to give us freedoms. Many of you in this room, you've had family members that have died to protect those freedoms. My great-uncle... Never saw life past 19 years of age because he died in World War II fighting for freedoms. I, I don't think we probably, or at least I won't paint with a broad brush, I don't thank God enough for the freedom that we have to worship here. I don't pray enough for our leaders. But agape, Christianity has nothing to do with patriotism. None. And see what happens is you take this philosophy and you just bring it kind of close. I love God. I love my country. And over time, you grow up and your kids grow up and your grandkids grow up and they hear that. Love God. Love country. Love God. Love country. Until one day the Christian religion is married to the philosophy of patriotism. 
So closely are they married that you can't separate the two. And they have nothing to do with each other. It is not Jesus plus America. It's just Jesus. This country is going to end like every other country on earth. And one day, there will be one land and one people and one king, and it will be Jesus. And it will be people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue forever. Love country. You can do that. But don't marry that to Christianity. And see how subtle that can happen. See how quickly that can happen and we don't even recognize it. You think, that's not really a problem here. In the last five years since I have been the pastor of this church, we have had a family that left here because they said I wasn't patriotic enough in my preaching. We were not patriotic enough as a church. And they left here because of that. That's an example of pollution bringing something into the gospel. Let me give you an example of dilution. Several years ago, many, many years ago, over a decade ago, there was a young man in this church. And I knew him very well and I had a chance to spend time with him and to do some teaching with him. And he graduated and he was excited to leave here and go on mission. And he joined a mission organization in the northern part of the country. And they began working in inner cities. And they would go into these inner cities and they would work for social equality and justice. They would feed the hungry. They would clothe the poor. They would look for those who were marginalized. They would try to help them get jobs. and All good things. But as I was talking to this young man, as he went to this organization, as he got involved, and I would talk to him and I would ask him what all they were doing, over time I began to understand that the gospel they were presenting was God loves you. We're here because God loves you and we want to make your life better. They didn't talk about sin. They didn't talk about the need to repent. And as him and I began to talk about that and I would ask him about that, he would tell me things that they were learning in their Bible studies. One day we started talking about the cross and we started talking about Jesus. And he said to me, "I, I think what I'm learning is that the sacrifice of Jesus was mainly symbolic. That He was sacrificed to show people how much God loves us. In other words, the gospel that he was learning in this Christian organization working in these inner cities was one that diluted the gospel because it removed the atonement. It removed the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It removed any discussion of sin. I would ask him, but how do you present the gospel? And he would say, well, we just, we, you know, what we do is we just love people. We just show them the love of God. We do good things for them and, and they're on their journey and they'll learn about God through that. Do you, do you know how good that sounds? Do you know how good it sounds to present a gospel that is God loves you and he doesn't want to deal with your sin? God loves you and you don't have to change your lifestyle. God loves you. You don't have to worry about what you're doing. He's here. We just want to make your life better. Jesus died on the cross to show you how much God loved you, not to deal 
with your sin. That is appealing. And church, it's not just appealing to society and culture. It's appealing to young and maybe old Christians. It's appealing because we can present that gospel and it won't cost us much. We won't have to worry about losing friends and losing jobs and losing face when we present that gospel. It's a dilution of the gospel. And it is a false philosophy that people bring in next to Christianity. Yeah, 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 we're Christians. We love Jesus. But we just want to, we just want to, we're going to show that by how we treat people. Now listen, I am for feeding the hungry. I am for clothing the poor. I am for working for justice and equality. I really am for those things. But not in contrast to Scripture. Not where we overlook what the Bible shows us about truth and error and sin and righteousness. We can't give up one for the other. It's both. We love people and by speaking truth to them. We love people by doing good works. Jesus said that. Do your good works so that people can see those good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. Yes, we do good works coupled with the truth of the Gospel that every person is lost apart from Jesus and need His atoning work on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. So in your notes, to walk the narrow road of the true Gospel requires the direction of Christ which He works in part through the fellowship of His church. We can pollute the Gospel. We can dilute the Gospel. So how do we avoid that, church? Well, what Paul is doing in this letter is he's telling the Colossians, don't let go of the Gospel that Epaphras taught to you. That he came and shared with you. The Gospel that Epaphras learned from me, and he has come and he has shared it with you, don't lose that gospel. Hold on to that gospel. I want you to look at a few verses with me if you have a Bible or a Bible app in Colossians. Look at a few verses that we'll eventually cover more deeply. But look at chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul's direction to this church is don't lose the Gospel you have been taught. Hold on to that. People are trying to pollute the Gospel. They're trying to dilute the Gospel. You hold on to the Gospel. Look at verse 19 in chapter 2. He's talking about these false teachers. And he said, they haven't been holding fast to the head. He's talking about Jesus. But then look at the rest of the analogy here. The head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So it's that picture we looked at in our last series. Jesus is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. And we are the body of Christ. How does our body know what to do? How does each part individually, like we don't sit and say, okay, I'm going to lift my right index finger now. I'm going to move my arm. I'm going to step to the side. 
Our minds are so powerful. Those things are firing and they're happening in an instant. Who is the head of the body? It's Jesus. Jesus gives the direction to the church. Jesus is the mind of the church that tells us what to do and how to move and where to go. But the body is we're all in this together. So go to chapter 3, verse 16. Look at this. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How do you and I hold firm to the Gospel and not a polluted version of it or a diluted version of it? We do that by looking to Jesus for our direction, abiding with Him every day, going to His Word every day. Jesus, give me Your mind. Give me Your thoughts. Show me what I need to know. And Jesus, when I leave this place today, when I stop praying as I go throughout my day, keep leading me. Give me Your thoughts. Give me Your urgings of what I should do. Give me the conversations I should have. Teach me. Lead me. But also, we do this corporately. The plan of Jesus is that He will work in part through the fellowship or the koinonia of His church. So I'm calling us back to everything we just learned in this last series. What did I say to you last week if you were here? The final thing that I wanted us to take away from that series on community. It is that unity and unity in the church comes from Jesus. We are connected through Jesus. So as you and I abide with Him every day and He's giving us direction, we're united. As we come together, we teach one another. We admonish one another. We sing songs together. Sam and the worship team go to great lengths to think through these songs. We're singing songs that are, that are theologically right and good. We're learning these things together. And if one of us starts getting a little off course and our gospel is polluted or it's diluted, we're to come together. We're to pull one another aside and say, hey, I, I want to talk more about that thing you shared. I want to talk more about what I'm seeing right now in your life. Can we discuss that? Or we just get together in small groups and we talk about the Bible together. And through those discussions, Jesus keeps us on the narrow road. That's what Paul is saying to Colossae. And so this brings us to our final theme in your notes. Looking to Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, in both meditation and practice, really is enough to manifest a fruitful and powerful church. Looking to Jesus in both meditation and practice really is enough to manifest a fruitful and powerful church. Let me put it another way. Christ is all. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. We're going to see more about this Colossians heresy as we go. But I will tell you up front, Paul doesn't refute it line by line. He doesn't say, okay, they're teaching this, they're teaching this, they're teaching this. What you see Paul do in this letter 
is over and over and over again, he presents the supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus. He says Jesus is supreme over everything and Jesus is sufficient for what you need. Jesus is enough. He brings it back to Jesus. Again, I will tell you, sometimes it's subtle. Imagine for a moment someone came to ask you, tell me about how you've grown spiritually. I see that you are spiritually mature. I want to learn, how have you done that? And you were to say to them, I'll tell you, the greatest thing that I ever did, the best thing that I ever did, what has meant more to my spiritual growth than anything else is I discipline myself to get up every morning and spend time in the Bible and prayer for an hour. And if you really want to grow spiritually, you should discipline yourself to get up in the morning and spend time in the Bible and prayer for an hour. That's how you'll grow spiritually. Now, is it wise advice to start your day praying and reading your Bible? Absolutely. But listen, it's not your discipline that made you grow. It was Jesus. See how subtle that becomes? See how we focus on the rule or the discipline and not the person? Jesus is enough. I'm not telling you to not spend time with Jesus. I tell you the opposite. Spend time with Jesus. Get up early. Go to bed late. Spend time with Jesus. But your growth, your hope, your sufficiency is not in your disciplines. It's in Christ. The disciplines take you to Christ, but give glory to Jesus. He is supreme. He is enough. That's what Paul preaches throughout this letter. Paul's antidote to the Colossi heresy is Jesus. If he shows them Jesus, they'll see what's fake. If he shows them what Jesus has taught and what Jesus has done, they will see what is not right. So focus on Jesus. That's what Paul does throughout this letter. It's very likely that what these false teachers were saying is that it was Christ plus visions of heaven. Christ plus calling on angels to help us. To help us worship, to protect us. It's likely they talked about rule keeping. They wanted to battle demonic and troubling forces in the world. And so they were saying, yeah, 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 Jesus, but also we need, we need the, you need these visions that I've had. You need angels like I, like I call on and I worship or I, they help me worship. We don't know exactly what was going on there, but this is all part of what Paul talks about. In other words, you need Jesus plus these things for a fullness of the experience of Christianity. Look at chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. They were saying you need these other things to fully experience Christianity. Look at what Paul says. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul says, you, look, if God gives you visions, amen, but you're not... You're not seeking an experience apart from Christ. You don't need Christ plus visions. You don't need Christ plus angels to protect you. You just need Jesus. 
All of God was in Jesus, and all of Jesus is in you. And He is the ruler over every power and authority. So you don't have to be afraid. Jesus is supreme, and He is sufficient. So abide with Christ. That's the message of Paul. When I tell us, meditate on Christ, His life, death, and resurrection, and practice what you're meditating on. When I say the life of Christ, I mean His miracles. His teachings, all of Scripture, His ways. Think about that. Think about what Jesus did and how He lived and what He taught and then practice that in your lives. When I talk about His death, I'm talking about His submission to His Father, His sacrifice for other people, His love, His atoning work. Meditate on that and then practice it. Submit yourself to God the way Jesus did. Sacrifice for others. Love others. You can't atone for their sins, but you can forgive them of their sins that they've done against you. You can release them of the offenses. When you release someone of their offenses, you're being like Jesus. When I say think about His resurrection, I'm talking about His defeat of death, His deliverance, the freedom that He offers, the new life, that He gives. The new life is better than the old life. Some people will never find the new life in Jesus because they love their old life too much. But when you meditate on the resurrection of Christ, you practice that resurrection by living into praying for deliverance and freedom and then living into that new life that He brings. All of that is only possible if you abide with Jesus and rely on Him. But church, if we do that, if we meditate on what Jesus has done and we practice it, that's enough. Can agape in this little hill, in this little community of Pinson, with our little butler building and our pink carpet, can this be a fruitful church that has a powerful impact on people in our community for the kingdom of God? The answer is yes, if we audaciously believe Jesus is enough. If we boldly believe that Christ is enough, not our programs, not our ingenuity, not us playing secular music so that people feel at home when they get here, not that we've ever thought about doing that, but it's an example of what people do in churches. That's for God to deal with, but I'm just telling you, it's not what we're going to do. What are we going to do? Come here, greet one another the way Jesus has greeted you. Welcome people you don't know the way Jesus has welcomed you. Come into this room, and as long as you can stand or kneel or get on your face, sing about Jesus. It doesn't matter if you have a bad voice. You're not performing for people. You're singing to God. Sing about Christ together. Pray. Pray together. Study the Word together. Learn about Jesus together. He's enough. His life is enough. Talk about Him. He's enough. 
I've heard from more than one person that Colossians is their favorite book in the Bible. All of the Bible is about Jesus, but there is something unique about this letter to Colossae. There's something, there's a work that God did in this letter about showing the uniqueness and the supremacy of Christ that He, He didn't do in other letters. It really comes through in this letter. Think about how small this letter is. Yet it has had an incredible impact on the church throughout history. Can I tell you something else? Colossae was nothing. About 300, 400 years before Paul, it was an amazing city. By the time you got to Paul's day when he wrote this letter, it was a shambles of its former self. Today, we can't even find any remains of it left. We, we can find Laodicea. And we can find its remains in Ephesus, but not Colossae. One theologian said Colossae was the least important church to which any letter of Paul was ever addressed. But it has impacted Christians for centuries. Because the anointing of God is on all of His Word, but because there is a uniqueness to Colossians that shows the supremacy of Jesus. Church, if you in your life will put your mind to show the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ in all that you do. And if we as a church draw a line in the sand and we put our foot down and we say what we will be about in this church is Christ and His Word and obeying Him and seeking Him. If we make it all about Jesus and that's not just a catchphrase, but we actually do it and we mean it, this will be a fruitful and powerful church. Not because of what we will do, but because of what Christ will do in it. So I said to you last week in wrapping up the sermon, do you want unity? Do you want fellowship? Do you want community? Then be audacious enough to believe that if we learn how to love Jesus better together, we will have that here. And I'm going to say to you today, do you want fruitfulness? Do you want to, you just want to play religion and go through exercises of religion? Or do you want to be fruitful? Do you want to have powerful lives that make a difference and an impact for the kingdom? If so, be audacious enough to believe that looking to Christ, preaching Christ, obeying Christ, abiding with Christ is enough. He is alive and He is near you. Make it about Him. Look at verse 11 in chapter 3. This is our ending. Here, in this church, in the universal church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all. And Christ is in all of His people. You want unity? Christ is in all of us. That's our unity. You want fruitfulness and power? Christ is enough. Christ is all. Jesus is everything.